Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And we have just crossed a little bit over a year into our podcast. So uh, thank you all for listening. And today we have a great episode in store for you all today. We are going to dive a little bit deeper into the acute management of pelvis fractures. We talk about how to classify pelvis fractures, things you should be on the lookout for for physical and examination of patients with pelvic fractures. We even talk a little bit about X fixes and we talk about how to look at some of the imaging, which can be somewhat complex in pelvis fractures. And again, please go and check out our YouTube channel for our accompanying videos if you would like to see a visual uh, aid of some of the things we're talking about. And just to introduce some of our guests for today, we actually have two guests today. Super happy to say that. Our guest that will be talking about this pelvic fracture management is going to be actually one of my attendings, Dr. Chandra Mulapali. He is one of our trauma surgeons at Tulane University School of Medicine. He received his undergraduate degree from Wake Forest University. He did medical school at the University of Texas McGovern Medical School at Houston, and he completed his orthopedic surgery residency at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. He actually went on to do a fellowship in orthopedic traumatology at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston, and he has joined us on staff at Tulane University. It's been a pleasure working with Dr. Jandra Mulapali, and we are so glad that he came on and talked a little bit about uh, acute management of pelvic fractures with us on this podcast. And also, we have another special guest, one of my co-residents, the other one of my co-residents, Dr. Thomas Hoda, has been on previously before, but now we have Dr. Barrett Hawkins, who himself uh, graduated from medical school at Tulane University School of Medicine and is my co-resident at Tulane. Uh, Barrett Hawkins is a budding uh, and upcoming orthopedic traumatologist who shares a great deal of enthusiasm to talk about pelvis fractures. So he joined me on this podcast as well. So Without further ado, we all hope you enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Ramul Polly, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on. Thank you, Cody, for having me. Yes, and then I would be remiss if I did not say Welcome, Dr. Hawkins, as well, to the Nailed It Ortho podcast as a special guest. Um, so, Dr. Hawkins, welcome. Thank you, Cody. I appreciate it. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, yeah. It'll be, it'll be a good talk. I feel like we will uh, we will cover a lot of good high points today and uh, and talk some pelvises, which we all we all enjoy taking care of and learning about. Um, so, Dr. Pumal before we get into the talk of the day, we kind of asked some general questions, just getting to know you a little bit better. And one of the questions that we have, I know we, you know, we, you're an attending at, at where we're both our residents at, and I know we've talked about it a little bit before, but what made you want to choose trauma or want to go into trauma? What drew, what drew you towards that field? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So even throughout medical school, I was always drawn to orthopedics in that is one of the few fields where you could really fix a problem. 
And trauma in and of itself was kind of a crux of orthopedics. A lot of the injuries we take care of, whether they be truly falling into the realm of orthopedic trauma or not, are trauma related to some extent, whether that be the high energy motor vehicle collision, a gunshot wound, or as something as simple as a sports type injury that happens in a non-contact fashion. But trauma in particular, after I figured out that orthopedics was what I wanted to do with my life, the constant puzzle of orthopedic trauma and the fractures and injuries that we take care of, and the, fa the fact that every patient is different, every injury is unique and requires its own special thought process and plan and execution to be able to get it right. I also like the fact that trauma allows me to take care of whoever, whether it be all ages, insured, uninsured, that is not really my role in that whole process as much as it is in other subspecialties. I can just take care of whoever really needs it. And I really like that part. And I really wasn't afraid to take care of people that were really sick and needed it. And so that all kind of fit well with me and trauma is just what I kept coming back to. And I've never regretted that decision at all. Very good. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. You know, you do get a chance to take care of, you know, pretty much anything that comes to the door and, um, and, you know, you don't really have to mark it out as much because, you know, all the patients come to you, which is another thing that people love about trauma. Uh, I, Dr. Hawkins, so, I think he, he has some questions for yeah. you. I would say building on that, Dr. V, if for the residents, uh, you know, much like myself who are potentially considering a trauma fellowship, do you have any tips or advice that you'd give to them, you know, as they move through residency and towards fellowships? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that I have something specific for trauma, but for any field that you may be interested in, there's always opportunities to seek it out, whether it be on your own and sort of as far as independent study goes, or whether it be on the free time that you do have during residency, and even though that is limited as by the very nature of it, seeking out opportunities with either the attendings or mentors that you've made that can help you further your interest or whether it be as simple as showing up and helping out with cases that you find interesting are always ways that you can confirm that what you think you like is really something you can do every day of your life moving forward. And that's the biggest thing. In every field, every, sub, every field and every subspecialty has its downsides. Everything has its back pain or its um, flat foot. And so you just have to figure out what it is that you can handle um, and take the good with the bad and make sure that's something you can do every day. Fair enough. I know a lot of foot and ankle surgeons who love seeing flat foot come through the door, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for them. Yeah, indeed. And, I, you know, and to your point, you know, we do have precious little time outside of orthopedics, which most orthopedists, I think, dedicate to orthopedics. I think that's one of the things that makes our profession so great. But is there anything outside of orthopedics that you enjoy? Yeah, of course. Um, my wife and I generally like to travel. We're a uh, very much so into trying out new restaurants and any of the local bar scene in New Orleans whenever we can, which is abundant in and of itself. I also have a dog and a new daughter who also take up quite a bit of my time as you at least have met them. Have you had any um, any good restaurants here in New Orleans that you have, that you have checked out? Oh man, so many, Cody. Um, one of my favorites is Compare Le Pen which I know is also one of Bear's favorites. Um, from Nina Compton. Yeah, she is incredible. Um, I also think Coquette is very good. Um, let's see, what's something I went to recently that was really good? 
Okay. Uh, Never heard of that. I got to try it out. Saw a magazine um, right across, like kind of right by the Starbucks over on the, I forget the cross street. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I know what that is. <laughs> For anybody yeah. listening that comes to New Orleans, either try all these places out. There's a lot of good places. Out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, For sure right. there are. Cool. Uh, I think that was all good. And and just moving forward, so, you know, we can kind of switch gears and kind of get into the the crux of or the, the meat and bones of what we'll talk about uh, today. No no pun intended for the bone part. Um, say, for example, you know, Dr. Vim would probably, common thing, say a 25-year-old male, uh, you know, came to ED, was in a motorcycle crash, you know, the trauma team consults us, said he has a pneumothorax, he had a positive fa- uh, fast exam, left closed humeral shaft fracture, right open tibia, and then they noticed, they noticed an obvious pelvic deformity um, and they just noted things didn't look right. So say, for example, this comes into our office or into the ED. Uh, before we get too far into pelvis and fixation, what are, what are, what's some of the pertinent anatomy that, that we should know about when we're just talking about the pelvis in general? Well, so the pelvis itself, if we're going to break it down, whenever people talk about pelvic fractures, usually it falls into two different realms. With acetabular fractures, which is not the topic of the talk we're going to do today, and then pelvic ring disruptions, which is what we're going to talk about. And so the ilium, or the anonymous bones in the sacrum, quite literally make up a ring. And that's a fiber, the fibro-osseous ring that's attached with ligaments. Is anteriorly, there's symphyseal ligaments, and then posteriorly, there's the sacroiliac ligament is complex with the anterior ligaments. There's actually a true interosseous ligament as well if you actually go and dissect these out in a cadaveral lab. And there's a posterior ligament as well. And these all become very relevant for when you're talking about the disruption that we'll talk about in some classification seams. Also, the iliolumbar lumbar ligaments are there and they go from the ilium to L4, L5. And these can be good markers to look at whenever you're assessing patient's imaging for injury. And they can also give some clue to how stable or unstable some of these injuries may be. Now, the bony anatomy, as well as the ligamentous complexes, go on to impart an incredible amount of stability to the pelvic ring. And as a result of that, in the younger patients, these are generally quite high energy mechanisms of injury. And then, of course, as we all age and become slightly more osteoporotic, that energy level changes some. And so there's a bimodal distribution that goes on with a lot of these injuries, just like many other parts of our bodies. Right. And I always hear about, you know, them, they, you know, they always talk about, you know, the uh, posterior SI ligaments being, being the strongest. And um, they always talk about, you know, different interosseous ligaments, but yeah, I think it's good to know that, um, you know, if you see rupture of these, these, these ligaments and kind of clue you in towards the, the type of injury, or at least, you know, the, the, how, how severe it could be. And you always hear about those, you know, split those uh, pelvic four ligaments, like the sacrospinous and the sacred tuberous, is there anything else to know about just besides knowing that that they're there and that they can be ruptured and that leads to a certain type of deformity or what kind of a, a play does that role a role does that play so i just as all the other ones uh, that we mentioned have a function these also have a function and these injury to these areas as well can obviously um, increase the level of instability and of course with vertically unstable type pelvic ring disruptions Generally, these ligaments are disrupted as a result of all that. 
some people also say that when a uh, strong extra rotation moment that the sacrospinus may be rubbed, that all really sort of goes together. Um, and the thing that we all have to sort of remember is rarely are we actually getting imaging modalities that allow us to look at these ligaments. We're all making inferences off the displacement and the widening or traumatic disruptions of these joints that we're seeing on plane films or CT scans. So we'll see whether they're really disrupted or not. But I'll also point out later on, if you're careful with your CT imaging, you can actually see a lot of the soft tissues quite well. And so, you know, as we start to understand the anatomy, then we can start to understand the pathoanatomy. Uh, and I know the, the classic teaching is the Young and Burgess classification for these various force vectors. Um, I would first ask, you know, do you feel like the Young and Burgess classification is useful in general? And, you know, how do some of these injuries come about? Yeah, so actually, if you all allow me, I can actually give you all some good now secondhand knowledge of how the young birds classification came about. So I know Andy Burgess quite well. Nice. And Let's go for it. Yeah, so Jeremy Young and Andy Burgess, uh, Jeremy Young's a radiologist, and Andy Burgess, as y'all may know, is a orthopedic trauma surgeon. And they were some of the first faculty members at shock trauma at University of Maryland in Baltimore. And this quite literally came about because they noticed that as these patients were being funneled to shock trauma as traumatic injuries, that the, there seemed to be some reliable pattern of injury that seemed to show up more often than not. And so uh, Jeremy Young and Andy Burgess quite literally sat in an x-ray room and pulled up a bunch of plain film x-rays and put them on the x-ray box with or without some alcohol involved. <laughs> and came about with this classification system that they noticed while correlating the mechanism of injury that was reported in the field to these certain injuries. And they sort of created this classification gradient um, of somewhat, in a sense, increasing severity of injury with a similar mechanism. And so that's what the young birds classification, I think, is the best about is it introduces idea, a lot of the classification systems introduce this idea, but I think this one probably does a good job of it, is that a certain mechanism can cause a spectrum of injury and increasing energy causes increasing disruption of some sort. And so I think that this is probably the most widely used classification in my opinion. And I think it's good for communication as far as some mechanistic uh, description of what the x-rays may look like for someone over the phone. However, just like any classification system, and Burgess would be the first one to tell you, it has pitfalls as well, and it's not a all-encompassing situation. Right. Some of the pitfalls is, you know, meaning that there's combined mechanisms and not every injury, you know, fits into, the, you know, this type of pattern. Is that, you know, that, that's kind of the main thing you're getting at? Yeah. And also, if you look at their classification system closely, the APC model really does go through a gradient of injury, right? It's anterior only, anterior and anterior SI only, and then complete injuries. But if you actually look at a lot of compression type mechanism patterns, yes, is an LC3 generally a high energy and worse than an LC1 or an LC2? Yes, but an LC1 to an LC2 doesn't necessarily mean that one of those is worse than the other. They're just different posterior ray morphologies because a crescent and a sacral fracture, either one can be completely unstable or can have some stability to it. And it just depends on more than just that particular 
uh, fracture morphology. Yeah, and so for for those that are listening, that you know they might be the brand new intern in that are that's just hearing this. Can you kind of go through? You know, we're talking about LC one, LC two, APC three. Can you kind of go through that this classification system and what you know what the different APCs versus LCs are? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the APCs, and it says bottom row that if you're all following along on the presentation, uh, images D, E, and F. So an APC one is an anterior posterior compression type injury that only has disruption of the anterior symphyseal ligaments. And then a APC two is just the next level up from that. And it's the disruption of the symphyseal ligaments as well as the anterior sacroiliac ligaments. And also the sacral tubers and sacral spinous ligaments can also be involved as a result of that, how we talked about how they usually kind of go together. And then an APC three, is the worst of all of those in that it's a complete symphyseal disruption as well as a complete disruption of the posterior ring with anterior and posterior SI ligament instability. And so the entirety of the left hemipelvis in these diagrams is completely, dis completely dissociated away from the rest of the intact pelvis. And then if you look at the lateral compression diagrams at the top and LC1, is a intrusion type injury as opposed to the volume expanding type injury, the APC mechanism. These are volume contracting injuries as the pelvis itself is crushed upon itself by the mechanism of injury. And the LC1 is generally classified by a sacral fracture. It's generally a sacral ala fracture, the zone one fracture, and then superior and inferior ramus fractures. And also there's something about the obliquity of that that usually makes them more or less stable. Then from there, the LC2 pattern, the path of, or sorry, the uh, very eponymous term that goes along with that is a crescent fracture. And that's really an iliac fracture dislocation of the SI joint along with associated ramus fractures. Now, then you go to the LC3 or lateral compression type three mechanism and it's a LC2 with a crescent iliac fracture dislocation ramus fractures, and then a contralateral external rotation injury, usually either with some sort of anterior ring injury or not, but then some partial disruption in the SI joint, whether it be usually incomplete. But I'll tell you, it can be complete and it can be quite a bit worse than just that. And the very last one that sort of is a little bit of a catch-all, but also just talks about a slight different mechanism is the vertical shear. And also uh, the original young birth classification also talks about how there is more than just this and there's combined mechanisms that create patterns of injury that don't really fit into these boxes. So Dr. B, I also noticed in this diagram in particular, a lot of these are drawn about one hemipelvis. Does that sort of imply that these injuries or different injuries can be uh, sustained by bilateral or by uh, contralateral hemipelvi? Yeah, absolutely. So. And that's sort of why pelvic ring disruptions are complex in that they can be bilateral and they can be bilateral and they can both be bilaterally complete, which only adds to the complexity of the injury and then of course their treatment algorithm. But I think this was made this way just to, for simplification's sake. But obviously injuries don't really always follow the book and patients certainly don't read those books when they come into the ER for your management. Yeah, very true. And so I know you, you know, you talk about kind of, you know, it's the same, you know, doing a physical exam finding, 
and you know they have a an LC or a lateral compression type injury. And I know you you know you wanted to touch base on kind of how it go, looks on their X-ray versus you know kind of palpation. So what what can you what can you notice or appreciate via palpation for these different types of injuries? Yeah, this is this is a th- I think a hallmark of your examination of this patient when they first arrive, and also a lot of times we teach the paramedics or the EMS um, staff to also get used to doing this. And it's very much so a feel thing. And the more you do, the more you'll see. But in my opinion, the best test for pelvic stability is a midline directed compressive force. So if you place your thumbs over the ASIS and then your palms over the greater trochanteric region and then apply a midline directed compressive force to the pelvic ring, you can, gen- you can feel mechanical instability if the ring is obviously unstable. Also, if the patient is awake, their pain level will also give you quite a bit of information as to how unstable they are because stable pelvises don't hurt, but unstable ones hurt a whole lot. And so the video that, for those of y'all following the PowerPoint can see, this is an example of a lateral compression type injury. And you can see that with a midline directed compressive force, the ring itself contracts. It intrudes upon itself as a result of the fracture instability. But this physical exam finding will still be positive in an anteroposterior compression type or a volume expanding type injury. The difference is just that instead of contracting the natural volume of the ring and displacing the fracture, the midline force or circumferential force will reduce the pelvic ring and reduce the pelvic volume. And that should be a hallmark of initial treatment for these types of injuries. Okay. Yeah, I think those are all, you know, important points to make and things that you, I feel like, you know, you have to, you, once you do it a couple of times, even if you do it once, you should be able to feel it. But the more that you work on, you know, your exam skills and, and testing for stability when you see these patients, the easier it will be to pick up on these different injuries when they happen and, and notice how, you know, how the different feel is when you have a, an APC type injury versus an versus a LC or lateral compression injury. Now, one thing before we got to, before we continue on is that I wanted to touch base on the tile classification and in your experience, is there any, you know, any use for this or can you kind of explain what this whole tile classification is? Yeah, so Mark Tile was one of the uh, first people to start talking about pelvic fractures along with some of our French colleagues. And this is really a classification system that's based on mostly posterior ring stability, but he also does talk about some anterior ring stability. It, if you think about it, it kind of correlates along with the AOOTA classification as far as we're typically used to the A, B, and C being extra articular, partial articular, complete articular. But if you still use that same spectrum of A through C becoming increasingly unstable or increasingly worse injuries, it still sort of fits. So A-type injuries are fractures that really don't involve the ring so much, and so the ring itself is stable. Then B is unstable, um, but yet has some constraints still, and C is completely unstable. And so it's really just a partial injury versus a complete injury with either somewhat uniplanar instability versus multiplanar instability, but it doesn't quite... It's early. This was an early classification system, and this was a lot. Did a whole lot, I think, for the time it came out at. But I would, I don't use this, and I don't know that this is a commonly used clinical classification. But it still has value to understand. 
Right. And, and, and again, this to, to sum up what you were saying, you know, those A's, those are ones where the pelvic ring is still stable. So those may be somewhere you may have a, a, a iliac crest fracture or an avulsion of the, you know, ASIS or AIS. And then B is when it's either stable in one or the other plane, like it's either, you know, rotationally unstable and stable ver vertically versus otherwise. And C is the one that's both rotationally and vertically uh, unstable. And, and then this is kind of sum up our young and Burgess. These are going to be based on the mechanism of injury. And you have your APC or anterior posterior compression, which is an external rotation force. And your A's where is the one where you have just a little bit of pubic diastasis less than 2.5 centimeters or B you have greater than 2.5 centimeters and disruption of your anterior SI ligaments. And then uh, three APC three is when you have complete disruption of the anterior and posterior uh, SI ligaments as well. And then, so when we get to our lateral compression, those are going to be that internal rotation force. And the one is where you're going to have kind of this, that, that, um, the sacral ala impaction, impaction fracture could be complete or incomplete, uh, with or without, you know, rami fractures. B is when you have just that kind of crescent fracture that you were talking about. And then C is where you have that internal forces continued on and cause an external rotation force on the contralateral uh, on the contralateral hemipelvis and so kind of moving forward for those that are you know going to see this in the emergency department or back to our patient who's a, you know our, our our 23 year old who is in this bad you know motorcycle collision that has you know pneumothoraxes and positive fast exams what are some of the things that we should be on the lookout for when you're doing a physical exam on these patients so I think a good history when obtainable and then a thorough physical examination as far as neurovascular status, looking for open wounds. Open wounds around the pelvic ring are, can be particularly difficult sometimes because they may not be the most in the most convenient areas that are readily able to be looked at. But checking the groin, checking the perineum, ensuring that there's, there's no even punk tape wounds that are bleeding and have dark hematoma blood coming from them is important because that may be the only real marker you have of open pelvic ring disruption. Then of course, in addition to neurovascular status and the distal function of the limbs, you should also do a thorough genital urinary exam. And these, a lot of these patients deserve a true rectal examination should they don't have violation of the rectal vault and also don't have blood in the rectum. Now after that, you should also check for blood at the meatus in the male. And then a vaginal exam a lot of times is also warranted to ensure that there's no um, disruption of the vaginal wall or blood in the vagina, because that can also be the site of an open injury and obviously dramatically changes the management of these patients acutely and then also operatively. So for the, the young resident or intern, you know, it's a bad injury. They show up to make sure everything wiggles, everything's nice and warm. There's no blood from coming from anywhere. Um, is there anything else they should they should consider? And just to sort of lead a little bit more, you know, what's your opinion on sheeting or pelvic binders? Ah, uh, yes. So a lot of times, but by the time you are consulted, there should be an AP pelvis per ATLS protocol. And a lot of times there ends up being a CT scan already which also actually gives you more information, but takes a little bit longer. If there's any concern that this is a volume expanding type ring injury, so the ones that we talked about are the APC types, 
then some sort of volume containment is, I think, acutely essential. Now, whether that be a sheet or a binder is somewhat institutional and personal preference dependent, I prefer a sheet. It's cheap, they're readily available, they're soft, they don't cause as much skin issues, and all they require is a couple people to place a sheet and some clamps to hold it in place. A binder also works fine, and it, the biggest thing is to apply it correctly and make sure that it's doing the job you want it to do. So always get an AP pelvis x-ray after you apply any of these circumferential devices. But particularly for these volume expanding type injuries, people that have hemodynamic instability in that setting will respond very well to containment of the pelvic volume. And since we're on the topic and we're talking about sheeting, how do you correctly... If we're if we're going for a sheet, how do you correctly apply a sheet in you know in this patient that has this you know this this volume expanding uh, you know pelvic fracture that is hemodynamically unstable? So, generally, if you need to place something underneath them, the patient should be log rolled safely with assurance that they do either they don't have a spinal injury or if they do, then appropriate spinal precautions are maintained and then passing a sheet or a binder posteriorly behind them and then placing it so that it's centered over the levels of the greater trochanter. Now, if they have proximal femur fractures, acetabular injury that's associated, that obviously may not work quite as well, but that is the standard placement of a sheet or a binder centered over the greater trochanter to allow for the force, the compressive force to be centralized. If they do have associated acetabular fracture or proximal femur fracture, then the circumferential device itself could just be moved a little bit more cranial so that the ilium are really the points of immediate pressure as opposed to the trochanters. Okay. And yeah, and, and that's, you know, those are pretty much some of the exact same things I read and just kind of reading up and stuff before this and other things I know that was mentioned that, you know, when you sheet somebody, you don't want to have wrinkles, especially if you're going to keep it there for over a day or two, that this could actually lead to to skin issues. So, you know, you have to keep an, keep an eye on the skin if you have anybody in these sheets or, you know, binders for an extended period of time, you know, more than, you know, 30 minutes or a couple of hours. If you have them there for a couple of days, you need to make sure to make look at the skin and make sure that the skin is uh, is doing okay. Now, for sure. So, if the, so the whole goal is to get people out of these binders as quickly as possible. And now, obviously, that depends on the patient's overall status and their clearance to the operating room. But I'm very surgically aggressive with these people and getting to them as quickly as I can, safely, for those reasons. Obviously, internal fixation of some sort will always be stronger than anything we can apply externally. And we'll get into that a little bit. But the soft tissue concerns are real. You have to imagine that whatever force it took to create this bony and ligamentous disruption went through their skin, subcutaneous tissues, and muscles as well. And so all of those can be very traumatically injured as well. And there's lots of lesions and things of that sort that we should look for to ensure that those soft tissues are managed appropriately. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's one of the things that they they definitely harped on it, especially at ortho boot camp. Bear, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think they definitely harped on the fact that you know a bone is um is, is the break, but it's like a soft tissue injury around it. Like you just like you just said, you have to go through the muscles, skin, you know, fascia, all these different soft tissues in order for the force to even get to the bone. So 
you have to, you know, be keen to your soft tissue management and whatever injury that may, that may be along with that broken bone. Yeah. And the other big soft part with all this stuff is the bladder. And so ensuring that the bladder is not injured. And like we talked about the blood of the meatus or blood of the vagina and ensuring that they are able to urinate if they have a Foley, but there's no blood in the Foley bag. All those things are very key components that once again, change these patients' trajectories. And particularly if they're missed, if they're identified, we can deal with them. And let me ask you this, Dr. V, because I know at our institution, this is not an uncommon situation wherein upon you are called to evaluate a pelvic ring injury and find that the patient has already been placed in a binder or sheet. Do you, are you of the, the thinking that they, that should be left on or do you take it off or what, what's your sort of strategy? That's a good question. That's a very good question. So it becomes difficult in the pelvic rings where you have no imaging and everything looks completely reduced. In those patients that where there is no identify, readily identifiable injury on the imaging that you have, whether it be x-rays or CT, those patients, as long as they're hemodynamically stable, there may be some value to taking down whatever circumferential device they're in. If the injury is identifiable, I would leave it on because the hemodynamic benefit and particularly an unstable patient, I think would outweigh the diagnostic, diagnostic benefit of taking it off. Because as we're both of y'all know, whenever I fix these, the first thing we do, of course, is take off whatever's on in a controlled general anesthesia operating room setting, and then obtain AP, inlet, outlet, whatever other imaging we need on the fluoroscopy. And that will readily identify any masked injuries for the most part. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there I think there are even questions on that about CT scans masking the severity of the injury, you know, because, you know, they, they'll get a CT abdomen and pelvis contrast while they're in the binder and you'll look at the CT and say, oh, that looks that looks pretty normal. And you take the CT off and you realize it's a ABC2 or ABC3 that was just masked by it. So um, I think that was a good point that you just definitely brought up Bear. And uh, definitely a good thing to, to note. And just like you're saying, in a, in a controlled environment, in a patient that is not hemodynamically unstable, there may be some benefit to taking off that, you know, to that binder and, and getting imaging and seeing exactly what's going on. Yeah. And I think if you're doing this in the ER and you really can't tell what's going on, like, or if there is anything at all, then the way to do it is try and make that situation as controlled as possible. Have x-ray in the room. And then you or the general surgeons or all of y'all together, take down the binder or circumventor device, get an x-ray in a timely manner, and then reapply it if you need to, and ensure that the patient doesn't tank in the meantime. Right. Yeah. Those listening to this that are, uh, that are PGY1s, definitely make sure that the patient does not tank after you take that off. If you take it off and you see the blood pressures go down and 50s over 20s, maybe you should put it back on, uh, you know, so just, just keep in mind, um, you know, the patient's overall well-being and hemodynamic status. But, uh, but moving forward, um, so say, you know, we we're talking about imaging anyway, so say, let's just go through imaging. So what do you look for on an AP pelvis in patients that you're concerned for that may have a pelvic ring injury? So I think the natural thing that all of our eyes go to is looking at asymmetry. 
And so if you, for those of you following the PowerPoint, if you can see the image on the right side, you can see that the left side hemipelvis of this patient is dramatically different than the right side. And so the asymmetries, which your eyes always be drawn to, your eyes are always drawn to the most obviously different thing, whether that be fracture or ligamentous disruption as is in this case. But as you start looking at the details more, start looking at everything, look at the soft tissues, because you can still see the soft tissues on plain film x-rays and ensure that the densities all look normal to you and that the bowel is where you think it should be, because sometimes it won't be. And also if there's a Foley or if there's contrast in the bladder, the displacement of the particularly a contrast filled bladder will give you clues as to where the injury is because the bleeding is what's deforming that bladder and pushing it to one side or the other. The other thing of course is looking at the ligament and structures and the joints that you're concerned about. So the symphysis, the symphysis here is clearly completely disrupted. But then if you can actually draw your attention to the right side sacroiliac joint, if you look at the caudal facet, right where the arrow is right there, that ends up being a lot of times your best marker for the displacement, instability, and also your reduction uh, once you take these people to the operating room because that's a more densely corticated region that usually is seen better on imaging. And you can see that if you compare it to the injured side that that's that relationship is completely disrupted. And so that also is usually a marker of a complete injury as opposed to an incomplete injury. And is there any any telltale signs as far as flexion versus extension of a hemipelvis? I know some, at least one of our, another one of our attendings here, Dr. Martin, will, will say, you know, you can look at the obturator frame and, and see if they're not symmetric, just like you're saying, you look for symmetry. If they're not symmetric, then maybe one that can kind of clue you into is one hemipelvis is maybe flexed versus extended. Um, so do you, do you look at that as well? Yeah, of course. So actually, I would say that there may be a slightly easier way to do that. So if okay. you look at the, in this patient, the L5, uh, sorry, L4, L5 disc space, and then the relationship of the ilium in reference to that relatively horizontal line. And so you can see that the left side hemipelvis is cranially displaced in comparison to the right side in reference to that horizontal line that you can draw on most imaging software. And so that usually will tell you that there's some vertical instability. And if you look, draw, continue to draw markers, whether it be from the top of the ilium to the top of the ilium, the sourceal of the dome of the acetabulum to the contralateral dome of the acetabulum, the ischium, whatever markers of symmetry you want to use, if all of those lines are at the same level, then the symmetry is maintained. If they're at different levels, then the symmetry is disrupted in some way. If they're all uniformly disrupted cranial, then it's vertically unstable. But if the ilium are at the same level, but the ischium or the source seals are at different levels, that's usually a sagittal plane rotational deformity as opposed to true vertical instability. Yeah, yeah, no, those are all great tips and, um, and tricks, not tricks, but definitely just tips and things to look, be on the lookout when you're, you know, evaluating these AP pelvic images. Now, what about when you're looking at an inlet? Well, I, I guess I probably should ask beforehand, do you always get, AP inlet outlet, or do you always get AP inlet outlet Jude views? I feel like sometimes that can be an area of confusion of what x-rays to get. Yeah, good question. So pelvic ring disruptions generally deserve AP inlet outlet images. I personally do not require y'all to get 
plain film AP inlet outlet x-rays preoperatively as long as there's a CT scan and 3D reconstructions. But okay. some people do like them and that's totally fine. But AP inlet outlet images are meant to look at the pelvic ring in and of itself. Judays are for acetabular fractures. That doesn't mean that the oblique images don't have some value in certain fracture patterns, but if you're really looking at the symmetry of the ring, AP inlet outlets are the image that are meant for that. Okay, great. And then, so what are, if you're looking at an inlet? Because you can also, if you have a 3D reconstruction, you can you can turn it so it's an inlet. But what but what are some of the things that you pay attention to on an inlet uh, on an inlet image? Yeah. So once again, look at the the joints and the disruptions, and if there's any fracture lines that you can follow, then of course look at those. The other thing that the inlet will show you in particular is this will actually show you quite a bit of the rotational moment. So if you look at the iliac spines and their profiles and you compare them, if they're asymmetric, then there's generally a rotational moment involved with the displacement. Um, the other thing this can show you, although the inlet in particular is the image that lies the most. Mm. And it's because the inlet view that you need to look at certain sacral segments is different because everyone's sacrum is shaped differently. Each level has its own amount of kyphosis or lordosis. And so also the SI joints themselves are undulating in nature. And so looking, you never get a perfectly clear look down a SI joint that's through and through. But you can look at some level of also the anterior and posterior translation of an injured hemi pelvis. But once again, this becomes difficult because of the things I just mentioned. And what about uh, moving on the outlet view and particularly as it pertains to sort of looking at the sacrum, I know this is the really a good shot of the sacrum on FOSS, but identifying sacral fractures, do you have any tips as far as uh, reading that? Yeah, so I think use all the clues available to you. So transverse process fractures of L4, L5, like you mentioned, are avulsions of the iliolumbar ligaments. It should clue you into what the injured side is. And I say that because the sacrum itself can be obscured by bowel gas, bladder contrast, whatever else. And so use those clues to hone your um, tension. And then also looking at the ala themselves and the cortical densities that they have, the SI joints as well, but then also use the neural foramina to your advantage because the bone around the neural foramina is usually densely corticated. And so especially for transforaminal sacral fractures, the foramina themselves are excellent reduction aids in that either the foramina will be expanded during displacement or they can be contracted with internal rotation deformity or intrusion. But also as you compress these fractures or reduce them, the foramina should become more clear and they should become more symmetric as a result of what, you, what you're doing if it's the right thing to do. But then of course, this also becomes a good view to look at the heights of everything. So look at the ilium, look at the um, L5-S1 disc space and the relationship to the ilium on either side. Also the neuroforamina, once again, the levels, if there's a more midline sacral fracture, then of course the obturator foramen, ischium, symphysis, all of these things are tools you can use to try and make sense of the displacement. And I know that you also mentioned sacral dysmorphism and the outlet view is the view of choice to look into that. 
but I think we're going to get into that a little bit more here in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's just go for. Uh, so, what are some things that you look for on for sacral dysmorphism? You know, we're kind of getting a little bit of pre-op planning, but also want to touch on some of the things that you should that you you know all the clues that you can get just from looking at the at the plane films or looking at the 3d reconstructions of you know and, and ghost film so what are some of the things that we should be on the lookout for for sacral dysmorphism more dysmorphism and i guess we could start with an ap and then go to what you would mostly see on the outlet which is which is a main you know works day of everything yeah so actually bear since you are trauma inclined and i know you're familiar with this do you want to go through the hallmarks of sacral dysmorphism? Oh, oh man. Switcheroo. <laughs> Giving it to me live. So <laughs> the foramen are irregular and they sort of make a, they lose that pathway. It becomes somewhat narrow. Um, and, and again, talking a little more about pre-op planning, but less amenable to placing um, screws across it. Yeah, so sacral dysmorphism is only relevant to anyone that's fixing pelvic fractures. None of these patients ever know they have sacral dysmorphism, nor is it relevant to them in any way, shape, or form until they break their pelvis. And so sacral dysmorphism is really, a, in some sense, a failure of segmentation or a segmentation difference in the patients that are dysmorphic versus those that are not. And Chip Rout, who's my mentor and taught me just about everything I know about pelvic and acetabular fractures, describes sacral dysmorphism and goes through all these hallmarks. And so there's acute ehlers slope, residual mammillary bodies, tongue and groove articulation of the SI joints, irregular sacral neural foramina, and then failure to recession of the upper sacral segment. Now the clinical relevance of that is it changes the safe trajectories for screws into the upper sacral segment. It also precludes the placement of a transiliac transsacral screw at the upper sacral segment as a result of those morphological changes that I mentioned. Okay, so just to kind of re reiterate it. So, you know, if you're looking at sacral dysmorphism, you may see residual, and, and the mainstay is gonna be the outlet view that we wanna look at. And so you can see residual mammillary processes in the, in the sacral ala region. Uh, you'll have the irregular shaped foramen as, as uh, Dr. Hawkins and yourself were, were talking about. And then you can still have that residual disc space that can be seen between the upper and second sacral segment. And again, the, the, your workhorse is going to be looking at the outlet views. But when you're looking at a CT scan, you have these kind of tongue and groove articulations. And what what is that what, what does that really mean? Like, why is that important, these, these, tongue, these tongue and groove um, articula articulations? So their importance or helpfulness is that the morphology of different patients' SI joints is different. Some people's are flat. They're saucer-like. And so you can think about that. If you try and put two plates together and try and make them match up perfectly, it becomes kind of hard. And so the natural anatomy of the SI joint doesn't aid you in a reduction, whether it be open or not. But usually you feel that more with an open reduction because you're hoping for a good satisfying reduction that you can clamp and hold and fix. Whereas tongue and groove articulations have these increased undulations and it's almost like puzzle pieces more so. And so they fit together in a way that is more stable. And that's sort of the helpfulness of it Otherwise, it's really 
somewhat clinically irrelevant to everything else, but it is a morphology that is more common in patients who have clinically relevant dysmorphism. And it, like I kind of mentioned, this is a spectrum. There's not just dysmorphic patients and normal patients. It's not binary like that. People right. can have dysmorphic characteristics, but not be truly dysmorphic. And some people who have quote unquote normal anatomy still may not have a safe pathway for through and through screw. This is all just individual developmental anatomy of patients and everyone's different. But I think the images that Cody show on these PowerPoint is really good. And it shows you, if you can imagine with the upper sickle segment of that dysmorphic 3D image, it looks like something in between a sacral body and a lumbar vertebrae, because that's exactly what it is. The recession didn't quite happen to become like the top image where the upper sacral segment is recessed below the ilium. Um, and so you can see that the segmentation difference is really just what causes that. Also, that's also why if you have noticed, I always call this the upper sacral segment because I have absolutely no idea if this is actually S1 or not. I didn't go count off this person, all this person's vertebrae, but it's always going to be the upper sacral segment. Okay. And one of the things that we, that we spoke about was the increased alar slope, uh, which you can see on a lateral of the sacrum, but you can also see on the CT scans. And can you, can you talk about you can see what it on both these images you're showing? Yeah. Yeah. You, can we point it out? You were talking about, yeah, I'll let you do it, but go for it. <laughs> so, yeah. So the relevance of that is it changes the safe screw trajectory. So all of the screws that we put in are, within these well-defined osseous fixation pathways. And every patient's pathways are slightly different as far as their angulation and the size. But if you look at the two images of the two axial CT images in the center of the screen, the normal patient has a very different trajectory available for screw placement and also the width of it is different. And then if you look at the dysmorphic patient, the oblique pathway to the upper sickle segment is much more posterior to anterior. And then if you look at the 3D images on the left side, you can also see that it's much more caudal to cranial. It's a much steeper screw placement in both planes in order to be contained and safe. And that's where the acute ailer slope and the failure of recession matter because it changes this pathway completely from what is safe in a normal patient. Right. And so so if we're looking, you know, if we're planning and we're thinking, you know, if we can get a trans... Um, transiliac transsacral screw we're, we're trying to look through this space you know right kind of posterior to you know the front of the sacrum versus you know if you're maybe thinking you know just a couple si screws you may be looking at this space and in this trajectory i guess perpendicular to the si joint versus uh, not as perpendicular if you're going for transsacral transiliac screws and one thing that I wanted to touch on was, I feel like we all, at least I know I definitely did coming in, you know, being an intern and, and looking at CT scans of pelvises and trying to figure out what was going on. I had no idea what was going on. And it kind of just came with looking, you know, just, just with looking at a bunch of these with time. But do you have any tips as far as, or how do you read a, go through the CT scans of a uh, you know, of a pelvis and when you're looking for pelvic ring injuries, what are you, what are the little subtle differences you're looking for? Yeah. So I completely agree with you that this is practice. And the more you look at the more normal and abnormal you look at, the more you'll see every time 
but have some sort of method to how you do it. And the, if you follow a pattern, then you'll not miss things. But for me, after I reviewed plane films, I always start with the axial images and I look at everything. I look at the soft tissues. I look at the fat stranding and the subcutaneous fat. I look at the muscle volumes and whether they're expanded or not as a result of hematoma from nearby bleeding from injury or if there's a associated soft tissue injury such as a morel lavalet lesion or if there's air in the soft tissues that could pretend an open fracture or open injury and then of course you look at the bowels and you look at the liver and you look at the kidneys you look at everything that's available to you because those will all give you very helpful information from associated injuries but also what these patients may be like in that do they have, a, if they have cancer of some sort, that's relevant for you to know. Do they have excess intraperitoneal fat that increases their cardiac risk factors that may cause you problems with clearance or the safety of operating on these patients? All of these things are relevant. And then after that, I go to the bones. And you go to the bones and you look at the symmetry of both SI joints, you look at the sacrum, you look at the ilium. And like I said, not only look at the symmetry from one side to the other, because as the patient on the bottom right, both sides may be asymmetric and they may not be very helpful for references from one side to the other, but look for the obvious sites of injury. And the soft tissues can help you a lot with this if they're not so obvious, because the iliacus and the iliopsoas and even some of the posterior musculature can have increased volume or increased density as a result of fractured hematoma that can clue you into where the area of injury may be. And then once you identify the obvious injuries, start looking for the not so obvious injuries. Look for the ramus fracture that are minimally displaced. Look for whether the caudal facet of SI joint is truly intact or not, because that'll tell you whether these injuries are complete or not, or if there's additional sites of injury that you may need to address when you're making your operative plan. And then of course, as you scroll through, check the bladder, check, check the arterial extravasation if this is a CT with contrast, and make sure there's nothing that is gonna change, which you may or may not be able to do. Once again, the bladder displacement can also be seen on the CT images of well, actually with or without contrast most times. But pelvic hematoma will show up and that will also clue you in to, first off, what may or may not be injured, the amount of bleeding that's involved, and then also what you may encounter if you choose to do an open approach for whatever injury this may be. All right, I think those are all good tips. and. Especially it's just about looking at the at the other soft tissues first, you know, looking at the just like you said, the bladder, look to see if there's any extravagation. Another tip that I, I I haven't really used as much, which you just mentioned, is looking at the soft tissues like the iliacus or the gluteal muscles and see if there's increased edema in that from fractured hematoma. So that was that's a tip that I'll start, you know, using and trying to look at that stuff too. But yeah, I think with these a lot of it comes to you know just pure just repetition and continuing just to look at it as many as you can and evaluating just like you're saying for asymmetry and then for those you know not so obvious uh not so obvious injuries that you know that non-displaced rami fracture or so on everybody we hope you enjoyed this part one talk of our pelvis fractures kind of the acute management how to look at some of the x-rays with dr shantra and we hope you all tune in to part two, which will be released within a couple of days and learn a little bit more. And again, if this is your first time listening, please share this with a friend and hit the subscribe button. That is all I ask. If you just tell 
one person that you think may be interested in learning this stuff, if you just tell them and share the podcast with them, that would help out a bunch. So until next time.